You are listening to a Laison Lumineur podcast. Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Laison Lumineur. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. This occasional series records our lectures and gallery talks, insights from new publications, and interviews with collectors and scholars. Our aim is to offer an ever-wider public tools for learning about the diversity of our activities and the breadth of our interests. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. This is Sandra Hindman, and I'm here in Chicago with Nina Rowe, who is joining us from New York. Nina, why don't you say hello? Hello, it's lovely to be here. Great. Let me tell our uh, podcast listeners a little about who you are and what we're doing here. So Nina is a professor at Fordham University, an art historian. Full disclosure here, she's a former student of mine, although that's quite a while ago. And she recently published, I think it must have come out in October, she'll correct me if I'm wrong, a book with Yale University Press called The Illuminated World Chronicle, Tales from the Late Medieval City. And I've read it cover to cover, and I think all of our listeners should read it cover to cover. So this is an opportunity to get Nina to talk a little about her book that's newly out and explain it to our relatively wider audience than just academics, scholars, students, graduate students in art history. So Nina, can I ask you some questions now? Absolutely. I'm delighted to answer questions. Some of them will seem, I think, very basic to you, but let's start with what is a World Chronicle? Well, a World Chronicle, in the simplest terms, is a history book. And this is a phenomenon that started in the 11th century. One started to see World Chronicles written in monasteries and the idea of them was to write full histories of the world from creation from the beginning of humanity to the present moment and so those were things that were written in latin and they were written for monks and other clerics and but then in the 13th century there started to be a kind of secular version of this where writers who were attached to courts or who lived in cities started to write world chronicles of their own in the vernacular languages and like the what people spoke in the street and this is middle high german in the region that i'm interested in so they wrote these texts that went from the beginning of time as they understood it to the present but they involved, I mean, they were retellings of Bible stories, like the stories of Genesis and creation, and then going on with Noah. But then they went to stories that we considered, you know, part of a different tradition. They go on to the stories of the Trojan War with long accounts of the adventures of, you know, Hector and Achilles. Then they go back to biblical stories. Then they weave out again and then get into the stories of Alexander the Great and other Roman emperors and then continue on to the emperors of the um, Holy Roman Empire in medieval Germany. Do any end with, like, 
present day Germany, if I understand that your manuscripts date around 1330 to 1410, something like that. So do any of them end with like the guy who's currently running the city right then? That's a great question, but they actually end, um, the latest ones, the texts themselves go up to into the 12th century, maybe the early 13th, the longest one does. But the manuscripts that I deal with actually take those texts and sort of reconfigure them and add pictures. And so they were actually, you know, the manuscripts I deal with were made later than the texts that were written. And so they wouldn't go up to the exact day of, right, you know, say, 1330. Right. Yeah, pictures. That's the key word here, isn't it? Because... Although this is a podcast, and I always regret that podcasts are not fully illustrated because we need to talk about the visual material. So pictures, there are lots of pictures in these, picture after picture after picture. So even if you don't read very well, Middle High German, you could, um, they could, and probably people today could sort of enjoy these books pictorially. Is that right? Or do you think you really need to read the text to appreciate the pictures? Well, I think there's a lot to enjoy in the pictures themselves. I mean, most of these are extremely long books, the manuscripts. They can have, say, you know, 300 folios, which is, you know, front and back. So that'd be 600 pages. And then with about 250, 300 images in them. Which is an enormous number of pictures, an enormous number. Yes. There's certainly, if we think back to like life of a, you know, in the 14th and early 15th centuries, there would be a lot that would be amusing for somebody who would could leaf through the books and simply be, you know, amused by the pictures. But the texts themselves, as I said, you know, they are written in the vernacular and they're versified, which means, you know, they rhyme, they're in couplets. And so it seems evident that they were made to be read aloud. And so you could have in that in a household, you know, one or two people who were able to read and interested in reading aloud and could performers reading aloud like some people just like to do that and then you can imagine other people sitting around you know after dinner it would have been extremely entertaining are there any i mean we can assume that and we assume that for chrétien de Troyes and french romances that they were read aloud especially the verse versions but is there any primary source material that talks about reading aloud or reading these aloud in you know the german and austrian regions that you discussed these actually these authors themselves refer to reading aloud um they don't say like take this book and read it out loud but there are phrases in like woven in the texts that make reference to those practices well that's interesting well you remember our audience um they're going to be interested in the art of course they're interested in the text and the imagery but Let's try to give them some idea now of what goes on pictorially in them. Maybe we could start by, instead of just having you describe like all the pictures, which would take a long time since there are hundreds of them, why don't we start with what do you think is the strangest story told in any of these histories of the world? Yeah, just to explain the strangeness. I mean, this is the thing. Like earlier, I was, you know, I made reference to the fact that the texts themselves draw on 
familiar stories, like, you know, Bible stories, stories from Genesis, whatever, but they are revamped completely so that many of them would be just unrecognizable and really surprising to readers today. So things like when the devil sneaks on Noah's Ark. And, That's my like, favorite tricks. story. You picked my favorite okay. story. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's, ta- let's explain that story because, of course, everyone knows about Noah's Ark and the flood, but nobody probably has read the way that it's recast in this book and these manuscripts. So in this telling of the story, the, uh, the devil sneaks on Noah's Ark. Meanwhile, the Lord makes Noah have his, all of, like, his family members who are on the Ark, he makes them take a pledge of chastity, and he is extremely threatening to them in the text. There's a lot of lively dialogue, just in general, in these, and in this story in particular, it's quite clever, And but he talks about, if you violate these codes, if you sneak around, you husbands and wives with one another, because his various children had partners. He said, I'm going to beat you from head to toe and you'll be terribly punished. But meanwhile, the devil has sneaked on Noah's Ark. So Noah, in order to keep these couples from having sex with one another, he puts the men in their own chambers and the women in another. But when the the devil sneaks on the Ark and he tells Noah's son, he like talks him into sneaking to his wife's bedchamber. You haven't talked about the ashes yet. You have to yes. tell. <laughs> yeah. So in order to um, to keep the the couples from like sneaking into having their midnight rendezvous, he scatters ashes on the floor between the chambers so that he'll be able to see the footprints if they trespass, if they go in the night to one another's rooms. So the devil goes to the Noah's son and says, listen, your wife wants you so badly. She's like, she's dying of love. You have to go to her. And there's lots of back and forth going where the devil tries to convince each of them that they should break their vow. Finally, the son does agree because the devil says, listen, don't worry. I will carry you to the bedchamber and I won't leave any footprints because I'm magical or whatever. And so then you could just go in with your wife, have your night together. And then in the morning, don't worry, I'll take you out and your dad will never know. And so there are great pictures, back to the pictures, subject matter. There are great pictures of the devil trying to like talk the son and daughter-in-law into having this little tryst. And then also pictures of the devil carrying the son from his bed to the bed of his wife. Then in the morning, however, the son is like, okay, I'm ready to have you carry me back. And the devil's like, no, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, you never should have trusted me. I'm a liar. What made you think I would actually do this? So then the the son has to go back to his room. And and leave footprints. And leave footprints. And then Noah discovers the footprints and he's totally puzzled by them. And that is great too. There are images of Noah looking, like seeing footprints on the floor and pointing to them and wondering and saying like, how is this possible? And, um, you know, what happened? Uh, You know, it must've been that your wife snuck into your room, et cetera. In the end, the son and the daughter-in-law tell Noah, well, the devil tricked us and Noah forgives them. But those are some great images. Yeah, I love the story. And I should say in general, there are plenty of pictures in this book. The reproductions are both plentiful and very high quality. As in a medieval manuscript, you can sort of read Nina's book from the pictures and the captions on them as well. 
So that's my favorite story, too. And I think that gives our readers, um, or listeners, rather, a really good idea of the kind of, as you say, um, vivid dialogue, animation, the sort of made-up quality of the stories, too. I think it's worth saying that there are chapters in this book that treat different aspects of life in the medieval cities. And this one is, um, I've forgotten, the titles are, are longish of these chapters. It's chapter two, The Devil on Noah's Ark and Desire in the City. But I've kind of renamed the chapters, and for me, this is Sex in the City. And other chapters, uh, uh, since we're talking about the organization of the book, I think it's really useful to say that other chapters also make the book come alive in terms of, in very direct terms of the medieval city. I particularly liked the first chapter as well, which I've retitled, Working for a Living. Because, and maybe you could explain to us here, and it's really easy to read from the pictures too. The title is Adam's Descendants and Urban Industry. Tell us about these children of the first man and woman. This one is also, I think, again, uh, it starts with a surprise. I mean, or that's how I try and lead people in, because... The first character you meet in my book, and you meet him early on, of course, in the World Chronicle text, is Cain, who is typically known as being a murderer. You know, he murders his brother Abel, and so he, like, brings evil into the world, and he's terrible. But in the World Chronicle text, they say, yeah, yeah, he did some bad things, but he was terrific because he founded the first city. And the texts of the World Chronicles also talk about others of... Adam and Eve's children, figures who discover the art of smithing or develop the art of writing, these things that are essential to city life. And then the one that I am sort of delighted by the most is this figure, Naoma, who is said to be the founder of this, like the spinning and textile arts. And she makes for her father the first robe ever. And there's, I think, some lovely images of her fitting Adam with a robe. She says, you know, father, you shouldn't go around naked. Yeah, I thought that was really good. And yes, the images are quite plentiful of her and including, um, you interpret one as her chalking the robe, yeah. just, just as a dressmaker today would either alter or make a custom garment. And I think also, I mean, it's not just that these are the founders of the different urban industries or working for a living. Here, I think it's worth pointing out that you relate these images to the actual economic and urban situation in Germany with fabric. Yeah, there's a, a particular fabric that called fustian that was really, it sort of exploded in the 14th century and really changed the economics of a lot of cities in southern Germany. Yeah, and, you know, we don't really think of Germany as a fabric center. We think of Bruges and London with the wool and Italy with brocades and velvet. But these manuscripts in your book enriches our understanding of the economic as well as later on the religious situation there. I, I think that some of these give us a really good idea of how the pictures work and you can imagine these people sitting around saying, wow, I didn't know that the descendants of 
of the first man and woman started all of these crafts or occupations. People who uh, will look at our podcast will, of course, see the cover of your book, which is advertised on the Yale University Press site and also now on Amazon. But it's very odd. In fact, someone today who works here asked me, what's going on in that cover? So can you explain the cover? Kind of Yeah, how- the cover is from one of my favorite manuscripts that I deal with. It's a manuscript that's in New York. It's on paper and it's painted with washes. And so you can really see the sort of the strength and delicacy of the, the sort of the handling of wash and watercolor, what we would imagine to be watercolor in these manuscripts. What's depicted is a scene from the story of Daniel. This is King Nebuchadnezzar who sets up an idol and the idol is in the, the form of a column. And so just at the sort of the left extreme, one sees it's a pink column that looks like it's made out of marble. Popping out of it is a face, and that is the devil. The text that accompanies this talks about the devil residing in the column. And indeed, at the end of this story, as it's told in the World Chronicles, the column breaks apart and the devil sort of skitters out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So these devils are throughout the book. They're quite, yeah. um, it helps you visualize how people understood these often religious uh, themes. Yeah, but it's also, you know, when, you, when one thinks religion, this isn't the kind of use of a biblical story that one might expect from the Middle Ages. People tend to think of the Middle Ages as being pious in a way that might even accord with sort of Protestant attitudes. But that by no means is the case. There's so much creativity and fun that is taken, I think, with these stories. Yeah, I think readers and hopefully the listeners of our podcast would also be taken by and interested in your third chapter. And I know that you already did a podcast on the Jews as represented in the World Chronicle. Is that right? Is that what the... Mm -hmm. um, Yeah. And so this chapter is called Moses the Jew with an Ethiopian wife in the time of plague. Actually, I've renamed it Other Lives Matter. Um, but um, it has one of my favorite pictures, too, because, of course, I'm also a jewelry dealer. So it has Moses and the Antarbus and the Ring of Forgetting. But maybe you could talk a little about Jews, Ethiopians, like others as represented in the World Chronicle and how that interweaves with the fabric of the medieval German city. Yeah, I like this chapter a lot because it gives us an opportunity to explore, you know, facets of, again, the medieval city that often get lost in popular conceptualizations. That is, increasingly scholars recognize that European cities were not homogeneously white, and they certainly, we've long known that they weren't homogeneously Christian, because of course with the great Jewish populations that you would have certainly in northern European cities. And so I focus in this chapter on the city of Regensburg, um, which was a port city. 
And it also had a great, a sort of very uh, prosperous and fairly large Jewish population in it. And what I found so striking about the telling of the story of Moses in the World Chronicles is that there's a great deal of emphasis put on his Jewish status. Indeed, like the whole, and, and there's a great deal of sympathy for him as a Jew. There is this extensive account of his mother letting him go as an infant and because she wants to protect him because he's a Jew and her running, you know, along the banks of the river as he floats down away and tearing her hair out and crying. And then when he comes into the court of the Pharaoh, they go endlessly on and on about him like is he jewish is he not jewish what would happen if he were jewish and there seems to be a lot of sort of interest and curiosity in that and also uh curiosity about circumcision and there is an episode that's added in that appears again in this world chronicles where when moses is like a youth maybe 16 years old his maid says to him you know you're not like the other people at the court you're different, you know, look at yourself, essentially, like, take a peek, peek like, in your underwear, and you'll see that you're different, and so there's a picture of him, I mean, you know, an illumination of him looking down at his circumcised penis, and saying, huh, well, look at that, this seems to register with the fact that, like, in Regensburg, and other places, but particularly this city, the Jewish population was extremely well protected. Even in those periods in the 14th century that people are probably familiar with, these pogroms against Jews often connected to the Black Death or to other later waves of plague, where Jews would be accused of, and again, poisoning wells and sort of spreading disease. In Regensburg, the Jews of the city were protected, and there was, you know, documents that are signed by all, like, the leading families saying, if you touch our Jews, you know, you'll be punished. And they're um, protected for economic reasons, or is there a wider social acceptance? I mean, they're protected in Italy, partly because they're so powerful economically, running banks and money lending. I think it's probably a both and situation. That is, I mean, we all know that for a variety of reasons and also by the way traditions developed that Jews became, yes, immersed in the, the financial trades um, and there were money lenders. And so the prosperity of the city relied on mm -hmm. this community of Jews, but also their district, their neighborhood was right in the center. I mean, it was practically next to the Rathaus, you know, mm -hmm. the municipal, mm -hmm. you know, the town hall. And, and again, they're, they're just seems to have been a good deal of amity. And the thing is that we don't have a lot of texts that tell us like day to day how people got by or how people felt about one another. Right. Um, and that's why we can use things like both the texts and the images in these fictional things, these things like World Chronicles, to try and get at some of that texture of day-to-day -day life or exchange or collegiality or whatever it is. So it's similarly with uh, recognizing that in a port city like Regensburg, you would have people coming through with all kinds of skin tone. That is because that's where trade happens with people from the Mediterranean region, from North Africa. And then the text with Tarbis um, that has this favorite uh, scene of yours, it's one of my favorite images too, where Moses he marries an African princess. And it's and on the back cover. I think we'll use both the yeah. front cover and the back cover for the illustration of our podcast. So at least viewers can see both of those. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so he, he and Tarbis fall in love. And there are these 
these wonderfully sympathetic images of this African princess with Moses, and and then the account itself is really touching. And again, this is an, an opportunity to imagine a sort of a richer world and imagination for people who lived in the 14th century that, or an early 15th century in this case, that they, again, Europe wasn't homogeneously white in ways that one might expect. And there was an, indeed sort of curiosity about people who weren't most of your other neighbors, we can guess. Right. This is from the chapter um, that I've called Other Lives Matter. And I think, you know, it's worth returning here to the subtitle of your book, which might seem first glance, you know, relatively straightforward and even banal, tales from the late medieval city. Because, in fact, I mean, they're not tales. The World Chronicle doesn't tell tales from the late medieval city. But what you've done, which is so remarkable, I think, and so interesting, is to weave these stories from long ago, long before the medieval city, into the lives of those in the medieval city. So you're right. I mean, I think, again, it's worth underscoring that these stories, these tales have helped you unwrap what life was like in, for people at, in this social class in the medieval city. Let's talk about this social class. Like, what do you know about who owned and read these then? I know yeah. you have a few actual owners. I think that's interesting, too. Yeah, I mean, what I find interesting about this genre of manuscript is people tend to uh, be familiar with manuscripts that were made in monasteries or that were made for clerics or manuscripts made at royal or princely right. courts. For the court. But these seem to have been made for high-ranking burghers or members of the lower nobility. I mean, the 14th and early 15th centuries were a period where burghers, people without bloodlines, the titles, people who made their money investing as entrepreneurs in things like weaving and textiles and mm -hmm. other like long-distance trade, they became extremely wealthy and they would have i mean some of their their townhouses their urban mansions still survive for instance in the city of regensburg it's amazing there are skyscrapers essentially the 14th century version of skyscrapers still standing mm -hmm. um and there are no records of any illuminated world chronicle being in the possession of anyone at the like the upper ranks imperial royal mm -hmm. princely um there is one manuscript that's at the Getty Museum in Los Angeles that has a lady, a patron, like having a, a, a dialogue with a scribe where he says, you know, good day to you. And she says, hello there, you know, um, and she seems to be like a lower rank noble. You know, there she is engaging with the guy who's copying a book. Is that the uh, is that the one is that the Elizabeth? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, no, that's not her, but I talk about her in relation to this other Elizabeth. I see. Who we do know about who owned a different manuscript. Mm -hmm. And again, we, we just have a list of her books, and she was a lower-rank Austrian noble. Hmm. But what's interesting is we also have 
the the manuscripts themselves, of course, you know, had long lives after they were first acquired. And later owners in the 15th and 16th centuries would, you know, sort of regularly write their names in the front. And they, again, tend to be people from this lower noble ranks and upper urban ranks passing around among you know, those that sort of those tiers of society. The, sort of, I extrapolate from that information and also sort of based on the, the sort of urban themes in these books and knowing about how upper rank burghers sort of took on the um, fashions and mores and sort of habits of what the nobility did in this period, that there is this kind of blurring and aspirational quality among those people, and they seem to be the ones who were the audience for this. I mean, there's a lot um, of interest today, of course, in women and the book. And um, so I was struck by your Elizabeth owner, but I was also struck by this other manuscript, especially considering how overt the sexuality is in the imagery. I was struck by this other manuscript that was owned by a convent of nuns. (laughs) Is that right? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not bad, I think, to have evidence that is surprising. It's not always, you know, easy to know like how what things would have meant to their original viewers. There's lots of evidence of convents being filled with naughty girls. You know, we've got stories from this is also Regensburg. I can't remember in the 10th century where they were like, you know, we have accounts of them being disciplined for sending love notes to the boys at the monastery across the way. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there. It's like, you know, when there used to be private girls' schools and private boys' schools, universities in America. Um, same thing. That's the modern-day equivalent, isn't it? Yeah. Um, now everything's co-ed, of course. Actually, everything isn't even co-ed. Everything is, like, remote now. How? <laughs> I wanted to ask you a few more. You sort of talked about the audience then. Who do you think your audience could be now if we think about expanding um, the audience for these. Or to ask another way, is there anything comparable today? I used to say that the Grand Chronique, the great chronicle of like France, was sort of equivalent to, you know, the scrapbook you might make with pictures, if you make scrapbooks anymore, with pictures of an event, Easter, a Seder, a wedding or something. Is there something equivalent to the World Chronicle or these World Chronicles today? Hmm. Yeah, I, I could see a parallel, but not quite in the terms that you cast it. But to me, they seem more like Hamilton. Like, they, it's like <laughs> taking some, you know, history, something in the past, and putting it in the guise of the day, with the concerns of the day, with the vernacular of the day, or even Bridgerton, you know, which is on Netflix right now. It's historical, but it's multicultural. It's about the strength of the women, and there. So I think it's like it's taking history and making it entertaining, and, um, and which is something people like to do. Making it not just entertaining, but contemporary. Yes, or timely. Let's say 
Yeah, um, I hope that the listeners of this podcast will go out and get your book and like look at it too. As I was working on like this podcast, I came across, I think I already wrote you this, the Englewood Review, which lists your book among the 12 beautiful gift books of 2020. And I don't know if you looked, but it accompanies the other gift books are The Art of Nassau, (laughs) Bird Migration, and Black Futures. So I thought, wow, um, they really, you know, done a very wide gamut in their choosing of your book. Uh, did you notice that, by the way? You know, I hadn't actually known about that until you called my attention to it. I was also delighted to see that Lapham's Quarterly, which is a, yes. you know, literary, they also excerpted it. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think there is a hope that there's a lot in it that will be of interest, but, and partly because it's not the same old story of the Middle Ages. Yeah. And, and the pictures are just great. <laughs> yes. I mean, I've already said, and I know how hard this is, that Yale University Press did a really wonderful job designing it. And the pictures are not only high quality, but well chosen. I guess that part's you. And then integrated into the text in, in very readable, like really excellent way. It's a, it's a very beautiful and approachable and readable book. So did you choose the picture on the cover, by the way? I wondered with the devil in the column. Uh, well, I that was one uh, sort of a range of options. You know, I gave them maybe five options of things that I that might work for a cover, mm-hmm. and then they came up with a bunch of designs. And you may remember, I actually gave you, I think, my top three or four choices. Right. Did and you, I said, you know, what do you think? And you guys, you chose this one too. Did I pick this? I can't remember. Yes, yes I do remember. Yeah. I mean, it looked familiar too. So, um, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to hear about your book? We could sort of tell them that, you know, there are other chapters that tease out other aspects of the story. I like my titles because they're so timely, but, you know, things like there's religious tension um, for those interested in the period right before the Reformation in one chapter. There is pageantry um, in another chapter. The last two chapters are especially interesting. I mean, I've called them rulers are human too. And so is Jesus and his family. Because again, you sort of tease out how your audience in Germany and Austria would relate to these rulers and to Jesus, Mary, Joseph. Maybe the order is interesting, too. How did you pick the order that you put these in? I actually just followed the order in which they appear in the World Chronicles. Sometimes the stories of Jesus and Mary come before um, Mm -hmm. the contemporary rulers because of course they follow chronologically but not in all cases in some manuscripts they skip from stories of the trojan war to the stories of christ and his family Mm -hmm. um so it it more or less follows the just the order of 
you know, what was understood as how history unfolded. Except then we have a chronological part as having the contemporary rulers before. Right, But I also, I wanted to, so I was sort of keeping the thread of what's there. And I think the presentation of the story of Christ and the Virgin, I mean, I talk about it in relation to phenomena in cities where there's a sort of an emphasis on charity. And rich burghers trying to sort of negotiate their great wealth with the fundamental, you know, Christian emphasis on humility and poverty. And I, it seemed an apt way to close the discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's questions that, you know, pave the way for the Reformation and that pertain still today. That's very good. I, I think there, there's, I just want to say one more thing about your book before I actually turn to, you know, asking you what's next. I was also struck by how well-written I think your book is. And when I say well-written, I don't just mean, uh, you know, a kind of formal, academic, um, very correct. Uh, Your own language is so lively. It's, you know, unusually lively in the way it's written for an academic book. I mean, you use words like whisper, yarn, boisterousness. I, I mean, words that resonate in a kind of everyday speech today, I think, too. So, bravo, great job. I wanted to ask you, what's next? Your first book was also about the medieval city. I mean, the Jew, the cathedral, and the medieval city. Uh, Is there, what can we look forward to in your uh, future research? Do you have a project you want to dangle in front of us and tantalize us with? Well, first of all, I have to say thank you for those really nice things you said about the writing and just and the beauty of the book, too, which I cannot take credit for. But I just appreciate the work. Honestly, the material itself inspires one to be playful. I think this was a really fun book to write. That's where the spirit that's in the text was inspired by the spirit that's actually in manuscripts. Mm-hmm. But and as far as what's next, cities, you know, I'm interested in cities. And I live in New York. And the first book I did was with you. We co authored something on collecting medieval manuscripts that starting in the 18th century, the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. And I, so I am, I think that my next project is going to be medieval New York. Hmm. And it's going to be about collecting medieval manuscripts and art objects. And then the establishment of museums or things like the cloisters, and then the sort of neo-Gothic, neo-medieval architecture in the city, like the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. This was all happening in a sort of sweet cluster of decades around the, you know, at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th centuries. And I'm interested in that moment and sort of what was happening in New York from Wall Street up to Harlem and then on up to Washington Heights, which is where the cloisters is. Yeah, Um, so teasing out New York as a city in relationship to not just collecting, but building medieval-like architecture. Mm-hmm. The book you so, referred to, just for um, our listeners, is Manuscript Illumination in the Modern Age that Nina and I worked on together, which still has a lot of currency today. Yeah. I want to thank you, Nina. This has been great, and I hope uh, it will encourage many listeners on our podcast and that in addition, in addition, it will 
encourage many purchasers of your book who will read it now, excited by the tantalizing descriptions that we've given of the devil and Noah and the footprints and, you know, the guy who peeks under his skirt or garment and the founders of crafts and cities. The imagery is so rich. The telling of the tales is just as rich. So thank you so much for joining us today. Until next time. All right. Well, thank you. And I, and I thank the listeners for sticking with us. I really appreciate the opportunity to share this. This has been a Laison Lumineer podcast. Please check us out on the web at laisonlumineer.com and on our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We continue to update our content on a regular basis. We would like to wish you all a happy and healthy 2021.